Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We are glad you're here. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help get plugged into the community here. Like Aaron was saying, uh, small groups are one of the best ways to do that. So we encourage you to, to check those out. Uh, also love to invite you into our uh, kind of short new series we're beginning the year with. It's called Money Matters. And what we're doing just for a couple of weeks as we start the year is to spend a few weeks thinking about what the Bible has to say about money and why our relationship with money seems to matter so much to God. And like I mentioned last week, I just want to be clear before we even get, get rolling, why we're not doing this series. Just as a reminder, right? Uh, we talked about this last week, but uh, the church's budget is not in big trouble, right? We, we don't need to like like desperately increase giving in some way. Uh, we're not a, trying to prep you for some building campaign we're going to launch later this year. We just renewed our lease on this place. We're, we're not about to go anywhere, right? We're, we're not trying to pump you for money in some way, shape, or form, right? The church's finances are healthy. Things are going well, right? Additionally, we're not doing this because uh, it's, it's not like some kind of church-wide financial planning intervention. And there's a bunch of you who are in really bad shape with regards to your finances, and we need to like kind of emergency do some kind of intervention to help solve some of that problem. The reality is in a room this size, I'm sure there are some of you who are in a good spot financially, healthy. Some of you have a lot of room to grow or in, in the weeds on some of that kind of stuff. And we'd love to help you with that if we can, but uh, that's not the reason why we're doing the series, right? So the, so the question then is, why are we spending these couple of weeks as we begin a year talking about money? And like we saw last week, the reality is that even though we don't really like talking about money that much, uh, God talks about it all the time. There's roughly 2,000 verses throughout the Bible that talk about money and possessions and our relationship to those things, right? Compare that to only about 500 verses on prayer throughout the whole Bible, right? And you get, start to get an idea of how much God talks about it. Additionally, although it wasn't the thing that Jesus talked about the most, as some people mistakenly claim, uh, money was certainly something he emphasized repeatedly. All four of the gospel writers' accounts uh, talk about the way that he talked about money. And so the sheer volume of biblical content on money alone should clue us into the fact that it's a part of our lives that God really cares about. It's a, that's really important to him. And therefore, it should be something that we give our time and attention to carefully considering. But the reason why we're doing our, the series on money isn't just because it matters to God, but because as well, the, what we saw last week of why it matters to God. You see, God isn't anti-money. He doesn't hate it. He's not afraid of it. See, the truth is that we saw God, is that God really loves you and he wants you to love him. And he understands better than any of us the immense power that money has to either deepen your love for him or to divert your love away from him towards something else. We saw last week in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught about how what you do with your money and possessions, how you spend it, how you save it, how you invest it, how you give it, how you use it. It doesn't just reveal the things that you love and serve, it determines what you love and serve. He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, he says, not just that your heart reveals what's, your, your money reveals what's going on in your heart, he says your heart follows your money. What you do with it, it has this power to either deepen your love for him or to divert your love for him away to something else. And so if we want to be a people who both enjoy and who emanate God's love, then we need to understand the power that money has and how to harness that power so that it becomes a servant 
of our love for the Lord rather than a master that diverts our love for him away to something else. And as we continue our series on what God has say about money this morning, what we're going to see is that, is that harnessing the power of money in our lives, making it a servant instead of a master, right? It, it, it's going to require a fundamental shift in the way that we view money in the first place. A fundamental shift in the way we view money in the first place. You see, our default approach to money is to think like selfish owners. Our default approach to money is to think like selfish owners. But God calls us to think and to act as people who are characterized by the perspective of a generous steward. Right? And so it's a perspective that runs polar opposite to our world and to the default modes of our heart. But as we're going to see this morning, it's a perspective that actually leads to life and to freedom. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into God's word together and see what he has to say about this idea of this, this perspective of being generous stewards rather than selfish owners. And so let's pray. God, we're grateful for you, and we're thankful for your word. And as we come together on a cold morning, uh, God, we are grateful that you are the one who brings us together. And we ask as we study your word this morning that you might cause the truths, uh, just like Hannah and Aaron were singing and praying about, that the, that the truth of your generosity to us would be good news that shapes our hearts and that transforms the way that we view and relate to money. And so God, this is such a hard topic to talk about for so many reasons, but we pray that your spirit would give us soft hearts uh, so that we can hear and respond to you and so that we might be a people who are characterized by the perspective of generous stewards rather than selfish owners. And so uh, we can't do any of that without you. We need you to be the one who does that in our hearts. And we ask this morning, would you begin that work in us? We pray. Amen. Well, like I mentioned, uh, our default approach to money, when we tend to think about money, our default approach is to, is to think and to act like we own it. Like it's ours that we should be free to do with it whatever we want to do with it. But what you see in the Bible is that the biblical view of money begins by seeing not, us, not ourselves as the true owner of all things, but it begins by seeing God as the true owner of all things. In Psalm 24, uh, the psalmist writes this, he says that the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it. In Job 41 verse 11, God tells Job this. He says, everything under heaven belongs to me. See, the reality is that you and I, we don't own anything we have, not our money, not our things, not our possessions, not even the time or skills we use to make money in the things that we have. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 through 18, Moses, he reminds the people of this reality. He says this to them. He says, you might say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. He tells them, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. See, God says, I'm not just the owner of everything. I'm the one who provides all things, even your ability to own it in the first place. All of it comes from me. See, God's the true owner of everyone and everything. And so whatever we have then is ultimately something that has been temporarily entrusted to us. And what that means is that we aren't owners, but rather we are stewards. 
That word, a steward, is not a word that we use all that often in our world, but a steward is a person who has been entrusted with someone else's resources and who, is been, who has been given the task of managing those resources according to the owner's vision and values. See, a steward is someone, I'll say that again, it's a person who has been entrusted with someone else's resources and who manages those resources according to the owner's vision and values. And the reality is is that that is our situation exactly. See, whatever we possess is actually God's property, and he has given us the sacred responsibility of looking after it for a season, for a while. And what that means is that we're not free to use it however we please, but rather we are intended to use it in accordance with his purpose, with his vision, with his values, because that's what a steward does. A steward manages the resources of someone else according to the owner's vision and values. I don't know about you, but I love uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. And uh, there's this scene in the last movie where Gandalf and Pippin, they, they head to the city of Gondor. It's this huge white city kind of built, in, built into a big mountainside. And they ask this guy named Denethor for help in this huge battle that they're about to fight. And Denethor is not the king of Gondor. Denethor is, is the steward of Gondor. And he's this caretaker of this throne who has been charged with the, the well-being and the defense of the city until the true king comes back. But what you find out pretty quickly is that Denethor, the problem is that Denethor forgot that he was a steward. And he started over time to start living like he is the real king. And he makes decisions not for the good of the kingdom and the benefit of the true king, but he makes decisions for himself at the expense of others, at the expense of the true king. And he refuses to help uh, Gandalf and Pippin because what he knows is that it would open the door for the return of this true king. And so, you see, Denethor is this, he's the ultimate example of someone who is a steward, but who has the perspective of an owner. And you see how it is transforming the way that he lives and the way that he uses his resources and the things that are given to him. The reality is that all of us are prone to acting this way. It's not just some king, some guy in a Lord of the Rings book. All of us are prone to acting this way when it comes to money. We forget that we're stewards of God's resources, not owners of it. We forget that we aren't the king, that he is. And the truth is, is that most of our problems with money stem from the fact that we live and think as owners instead of stewards. Most of the problems with money that we have, they stem from the fact that we live like owners instead of stewards. See, an ownership perspective is marked, it's always marked by these attitudes, whether overt or underlying, of selfishness and greed. See, an owner believes that they're entitled to whatever they have, right? They're a good person, they work hard, they're intelligent, they've earned it, they deserve it. An owner thinks, what's mine is mine, I'm going to use it however I want to use it. And since we are all selfish by nature, this is the attitude that we tend to have most of the time if we're not thinking carefully about it. See, but a steward's perspective is altogether different. You see, a steward isn't marked by selfishness and greed. A steward is marked by gratitude and generosity. A steward understands that they are incredibly blessed by whatever they have because they don't deserve any of the resources or any of the responsibilities that they've been given. And that leads them to approach money with the perspective, right? If an owner thinks what's mine is mine, I'm going to use it however I want. 
Then a steward approaches money with the perspective that says, what's mine is God's. I'm going to use it however he wants. Next week, we're going to see what the Bible has to say about how God wants us to spend and to save our money, because he has, definitely has stuff to say about those two aspects, about how he wants us to use it. But what we see throughout the Bible is that God's instructions for how we use the resources that he's entrusted to us, they almost always begin with generosity towards him and towards others. When you survey the scriptures, when you see what it has to say about money, it almost always begins with instructions about generosity towards God and towards others. It's this overwhelming kind of blanket that undergirds everything that that gets talked about. One author summed it up this way. He said, generosity is the fullest expression of the life of a steward. See, the Bible has a lot to say about generosity and about and about giving our resources. But I think the contrast between the perspective of a selfish owner and a generous steward is most apparent in Paul's two letters that he writes to the church in Corinth. In, in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we'll take a look at these couple of passages in just a minute, but in 1 Corinthians 16, we see him writing to these uh, Christians in the city of Corinth. He's writing to them about giving towards this collection that he was taking up to help Christians back in Jerusalem who were poor and who were suffering. And we don't know the exact reason for the hardship that these believers were facing in Jerusalem. It could have been a famine in the region that we read about in Acts 11, or just persecution from the Jews in the area. Whatever the case, Paul's going around to all these Gentiles churches that he started planting, and he's asking them to give generously to care for God's people in another place. And the problem was, is that the Corinthian believers, they weren't real stoked about giving their financial resources uh, to uh, to help these Jewish Christians all the way back in Jerusalem. And we know that because Paul has to bring this issue up again in, in the second letter he writes to them, and he has to do it more forcefully this time because they basically just ignored him the first time that he, that he talked with them about it. See, what's important is that you don't misunderstand that it's not that the Corinthian people weren't generous, See, almost all of the public buildings and entertainment, including plays and athletic games in Corinth, they were donated by wealthy individuals. But in Corinth, you didn't give to the poor, and you certainly didn't give to the poor in another country altogether because there wasn't anything in it for you. See, in Corinth, financial generosity was just a tool that people used to kind of climb the social ladder. And the wealthy would give money to the city or to praiseworthy institutions, and in turn, people would elevate them. They would honor them for their benevolence. It was kind of this win-win proposition in Corinth, right? And so the city or institution got the money that it needed, and the wealthy people got the honor or praise that everyone in Corinth was trying to get. And so in contrast, Paul's request for them to give to believers in hurting churches in Jerusalem, that was to them a, the definition of a lose-lose situation, right? They lose their money, and they don't get any honor in Corinth, right? So for them, they're thinking, what is the point of this? This is, the, like, this is dumb. Like, what re- there is no personal benefit for us to do this. What's the point of that? And their selfishness revealed that the Corinthian believers, they fundamentally had an ownership mentality when it comes to money. 
In contrast, though, to this kind of self-centered ownership perspective about money, Paul's instructions to them about uh, generosity towards God and towards his people, they show us what it looks like to have a mindset of a generous steward when it comes to giving in general. And what I want to do with our remaining time this morning is just to highlight for you the, the five, I think, five principles that Paul's uh, that sum up Paul's writings to what Paul's writings to the Corinthians teach us about the actions and attitudes of generous stewards. All right, so five principles that I think Paul's writings to the Corinthians they they sum up for us about what it means to have the actions and attitudes of a generous steward. And what we see in Paul's letters uh, to the Corinthians is that uh, the first thing is that a steward gives first. See, in the, in the Bible teaches that generosity and giving is the top priority of stewards of God's resources, that we should give first and then steward the remaining resources as God's Spirit leads us. And in 1 Corinthians 16, what we see is that Paul writes in verse 2 and he says this to them, he says that the Corinthians are to set aside their giving on the first day of the week. Now, some commentators believe that this would have been uh, the day that most laborers got paid, but whatever day they got paid, the first day of the week, which for them would have been a Sunday, uh, that was the day that they gathered as a church for worship, and therefore it would have been the first opportunity that they have to give. See, this the principle of giving first aligns with these themes that we see in the Old Testament about, about giving our first fruits to God. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, it says this, it says, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord. In Proverbs 3, verse 9, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. The idea here is that by giving first, we show that we actually believe that everything we have belongs to God, and so he's actually the one who gets first dibs at it. See, but we're also doing, by giving first, is we're relying on God to provide for our needs. I always remember when I was a kid, one Sunday afternoon, I remember my mom talking with me. Um, she was just being honest about what was going on in her heart that morning. And as we were at church that morning, the offering plate was going around, and, and she was really struggling with whether or not she should put this check that she had written into the offering plate, because she knew that our family had a bunch of really significant expenses coming up that month. But she told me that afternoon, I remember she just said, I just knew the reality of what God, is that God is always taking care of us. He's always provided for us. And like, there's no reason he's going to stop doing that now. And spoiler alert, he totally took care of us. <laughs> like, it was, it was totally fine, right? But I remember my mom just wrestling with that reality in her heart and just being honest with me about that. And for her, what it came down to was the reminder. She's like, God's always taking care of us. And so that freed her up to be generous towards him because she knew that, like, everything she had in the first place was his. He was going to take care of her. See, the reality is that if, if we give as an afterthought, with what's left over after we're done, after we've done whatever else we wanted with our money, it shows that we're thinking like owners, not like stewards. And so a steward, a steward gives first, but we see as well in this passage that a steward doesn't just give first, we see that they give first regularly. Verse 2 goes on to highlight to say not only that we should give, that they should give on the first day of the week, but on the first day of each week, of every week. 
Again, this is a principle, right? We're not collecting a special offering for suffering Christians in Jerusalem right now. Uh, The New Testament doesn't mandate some specific frequency or day or time of our giving. We have freedom to establish patterns and plans that match the rhythms of our lives. And for most of us, that has to do with just when we get paid. But for others whose income is more irregular, it might look a little bit different, right? But whatever the case is, is that giving regularly requires both planning and intentionality. At the end of verse 2, Paul says he wants them to regularly set aside money so that when he comes, he won't have to take up a collection. He says, when I come, I don't want you to be pressured into giving something. I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to put the screws to you or make you feel guilty about something when I come. I want you to intentionally put things aside so that when I come, you are ready. See, because a steward is not characterized by giving just on emotion or impulse. A steward plans things out. They think through it. Whenever our income changes, Hannah and I sit down and we make a plan together. And one of the first questions that we ask is, how much are we giving and can we increase that? And that's not to say that all our giving is or should be pre-planned, right? In addition to our regular giving towards River City and towards other things, we also put some money away so we're able to give to unexpected kinds of things. We have a kind of a fund that's set aside. And so when a church planner needs some extra funds or when a college student's going on a missions trip or when our friend Paige's organization here in Dubuque needs a new trailer to help serve the families that are hurting in our area, that we have resources to give towards those kinds of things. The reality is that when it comes to giving, if you don't plan to give, you can't give first, you won't give regularly, and when you do give, it's probably not going to be much at all. Jamie Munson, one author, he writes it this way. He says, regular giving requires us to live a disciplined life and serves as this constant reminder that what we have doesn't actually belong to us. Irregular giving indicates poor stewardship a reluctance to give, a lack of planning, or just plain laziness. And so a steward we see gives first, and a steward gives regularly. But the third thing we see in this this passage in 1 Corinthians 16 is that a steward gives proportionately. Verse 2 continues on, he says, Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. See, every Christian is supposed to give. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are or how poor you are. If you have an income, you should be giving something. But Paul doesn't give a specific amount or even a specific percentage. He just says, in keeping with your income, literally that that phrase that's translated there, it says, as the person has been prospered by the Lord. The reality is that God has given some people more money to steward and some people less money to steward. And so people who make more will give more and people who make less will give less. But it's not the amount that's important, it's the proportion. See, in Mark 12, Jesus, he rebukes these wealthy donors who gave a lot, but who he praises the poor widow who gives just two small coins. And he says about her in Mark chapter 12, verse 44, he says, they all, these wealthy individuals, they all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. See, God's not concerned with the amount of our giving. He's concerned with the proportion of our giving. And what Jesus isn't saying, just let me be clear, Jesus isn't saying like it's only when you give 100% of your income that God's pleased with you or something. That's not what he's talking about there. But he's highlighting how the proportion reveals the heart of a steward 
Right? That's also why when this lady puts in her two coins, Jesus doesn't go up to her and like hand her the two coins back. He doesn't say, hey, like um, just two coins is really not going to help the temple budget all that much. Right? And I know that you really need this more than I really need this or more than the temple really needs this. And so like, just, just take that. Do, you, know, like, you, you really need it more. It's because the reality is, is that the amount you give is not the thing that's important. See, giving is not about the amount, it's about what's going on in your heart. That's why Jesus doesn't tell this lady, hey, you don't put that in. It's not really going to make a big difference. He sees what's going on in her heart and he says, that's what I'm after. I'm after a heart that sees that I'm the thing that's the most important. That the work of my kingdom and my purposes, that that's your highest priority. So the question then is, is if the proportion of our giving is the thing that matters most, the question then is, is what proportion should we give, right? What percent? And some people think that we should tithe, which means to give 10% of, of what we make, our income. And they would point to numerous passages in the Old Testament that talk about uh, where God gives this specific instruction. But th- there's at least three problems for us as New Testament Christians with the idea of tithing, right? And the first is, is, that, is that you have to understand that there wasn't just one tithe in the Old Testament. There's actually about three different tithes in the Old Testament, um, where God's people were instructed to give. And depending on the year, it added up to somewhere between probably 20 and 30% of somebody's income. Right? The second thing you have to understand is that the tithe was as much a tax as it was an offering. Right? It was a means for providing for the civil and religious structures in that society. And since you and I do not live in a theocratic government right, where the church and the government are one synonymous thing, right? like that just doesn't really make any sense anymore. Right? But lastly, and I think most importantly, the truth is is that we are never told to tithe in the New Testament. The only time it's even mentioned is when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for tithing out of their spice racks, but not actually loving God. So when we survey the New Testament, we don't find this some prescribed formula or fixed amount for believers giving at all. If I'm honest, it would be much nicer if there was. Right? It'd be much easier to be like, well, it's just right there, verse X, whatever, let's just do it, right? So if there's not some specific percent that we're supposed to give, then how do you figure out how much to give? And that leads us to the fourth principle we're going to see in Paul's writing to the Corinthians. And this comes up in the second passage in his letter to them in 2 Corinthians. But we're going to see the fourth principle is this, is that a steward gives sacrificially. Steward gives sacrificially. Just like Jesus does in Mark 12 when he affirms the sacrificial giving of the woman who put in just those two coins. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul applauds the Macedonian believers for giving generously despite the fact that they were in the middle of really difficult times themselves. He writes to them, he writes to the Corinthians about this generous church this way. He says, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. See, Paul says he's writing to the Corinthians who are selfish owners and greedy, stingy people. And he's talked to them about these Macedonian believers and he says they didn't give out of their abundance. They didn't get out of their leftovers. They gave sacrificially. They gave, what, they gave as much as they were able and beyond. See, the principle that we see here and throughout the New Testament is that, is that opposed to giving out of our excess, 
We're called to willingly give up something we could have in order to take part in giving support to God's work and his mission. I remember seeing uh, a post on Facebook or Instagram a while ago where this guy was, a, was, a, was an actor and he was talking about how he's, he, he wants to one day be able to have and so much money that he has enough extra to just give really generously. That's not the kind of generosity that characterizes the life of a steward. A steward doesn't give out of their excess. See, I think C.S. Lewis explains it best. He writes it this way in a book, his, one of his most famous works called Mere Christianity. He says it this way, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries and amusements are up to the standard common amongst those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving doesn't at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it is too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our giving excludes them. So the question then is how much you should give? Enough that it matters. Right? Enough that it matters. Enough that it makes a difference in your life or in your lifestyle. I mean, what that means is that maybe you can't quite take the vacation that you, that you might have or that you used to, or maybe you can't go quite as often. Maybe you're buying a used car instead of a new car. Maybe you're saving for a couple extra years before you fix up the kitchen or put a down payment on, on a home. And I just want to be clear. Sacrificial giving doesn't mean that you can't have nice things or go nice places. That's poverty theology, and that's total garbage. God is good and generous and loves to bless, right? But giving that doesn't impact our lives at all is not sacrificial and therefore not enough. My encouragement is to keep raising the amount that you give until you feel it. See, but what's most important is that you talk to God about it. See, if you're not giving regularly, I encourage you, just start somewhere. Start anywhere. And keep talking to God about it. And I'll be honest, like I said, it'd be easy if there was a number, but God's after your heart. And so you're just going to have to talk to him about it. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to act, he, he knows that the way you use your money, including how you give it, it has the power to either deepen your love for him or to divert it away from him. And so you're going to have to talk with him about it. But no matter how much God asks us to give, it's important to remember that we don't give because God needs our money. Right? Instead, we give to show our gratitude and our dependence on Jesus. And in return, what we see is that he gives us joy. And that leads to the final principle that we see in Paul's writings to the Corinthians. We see that a steward gives cheerfully or joyfully. Did you notice at the end of that passage about how Paul says that the Macedonian Christians, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. See, giving was not a duty. It wasn't an obligation. For them, it was a privilege. It was a joy to them. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul writes, he says, he says, each of you should give what you've decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, the reality is that when the grace of God gets into your heart, the question that you start to ask is not how much am I supposed to give, but how much can I give? See, when you see yourself as an owner, you're always going to approach giving reluctantly, feeling like you're obligated to do it. It's not, full of, it's not a joyful thing. 
But if you're characterized by the mindset of a steward, you're going to be excited to see Jesus change the lives of other people, and you're going to be excited to get to be a part of the work that he is doing. It's not a chore, it's not a duty, it's not an obligation, it's an honor. I've had the, the great opportunity for the vast majority of my working life, my career, to spend that uh, almost all the jobs I've had until like maybe two years ago when our church became financially independent were support raised. Kind of functioned like missionaries, right? And one of the things that was always most surprising and most encouraging to me is when I would go to thank people who had given sacrificially and given generously so that Hannah and I could uh, serve college students on campus or that we, so we could be a part of planting this church. And, and I, would say, I would try to say thank you to them and they would turn around and they would say, no, thank you for letting us be a part of what God is doing. And that wasn't just like some platitude. You could tell it was real. It was genuine in their hearts. See, that's the heart of a steward. A steward is filled with joy when the money that they manage is used in accordance with God's vision and his priorities. A steward's heart is filled with joy when the money they manage is used in accordance with God's vision and his priorities. And I want to encourage you this morning. Is that true of your heart? I'm not asking you, do you give or don't you give? I'm asking, is your heart filled with joy when the money that God's entrusted to you gets used for his purposes and vision? That's the real test. Because God's after your heart. And so we see in Paul's letters to the Corinthians is the call to have the mindset of a steward who is characterized by this kind of godly generosity, a steward who gives first, who gives regularly, who gives proportionately, who gives sacrificially, who gives cheerfully. And the question that you have to ask as you look at that list is how do you get that kind of mindset? How do you get that kind of mindset? How do you become characterized by having the perspective of a generous steward instead of the perspective of a selfish owner? I'll tell you right now, it has nothing to do with feeling guilty about it. Right? Guilt and shame can be powerful motivators, but they never last. And I can guarantee you they never produce the heart of a generous steward. They don't have the power to do that. See, the Bible, it doesn't motivate us towards giving and towards generosity with guilt or shame or duty or obligation or efforts to try to make up for our mistakes or cover up our sins. Instead, it points us to God's radical generosity towards us and it stirs up in us. The good news of the gospel is meant to stir up in us a joyful response of generosity back to God and his purposes. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7-9, through 9, he writes again, urging these stingy, selfish, owner-minded Corinthians, he says to this, he says that see to it that you also excel in the grace of giving because you really need it. Because you're so selfish and stingy, you're, you're annoying the crap out of me. No, he says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 
Church, here's the secret. The only way you are ever going to have the kind of perspective shift about money that will lead you to have the heart of a generous steward instead of a selfish owner is when you see the good news of the gospel and of God's generosity towards you when you weren't generous to him. That's the only way it happens. Janie Ortland, she writes it this way. She says, we are to be generous because we have experienced the redemptive generosity of God. When you see, she says, when you were poor, when you had nothing to give him, when you could not pay him back, he became poor so that through his sacrifice you might become rich. It will transform you like nothing else can. See, when you see God's generosity towards you, when you see his unmerited, undeserved, sacrificial generosity towards you, what's going to happen is that you are going to increasingly become a generous person towards God and towards others. I quoted this before. One author sums it up this way. Generosity is the fullest expression of the life of a steward. It expresses in practical and powerful ways the message that is at the very core of our faith, that God gave his only son so that we might have life. See, what we're doing every week when we take communion, when we celebrate that, we're reminding ourselves of God's radical generosity to us. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus' body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us, as he received the penalty that our selfish greed deserved, so that you and I might instead receive the gracious reward of being loved and adopted as his kids and being commissioned as his stewards of his resources. And so communion doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status with God. It doesn't change how he views you. Instead, communion is an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus, to remember God's radical generosity to us so that we might be filled with a love for him that overflows in a generosity towards him and others. And so as we sing and as we celebrate and worship, if you've put your trust in Jesus to be the generous God who has given himself for you, then go back and take communion. There's two tables, one on the left and on the right in the back, and you can dip the bread and the juice. But if you're here this morning, you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus. You're realizing that there's something else that has the supreme level of devotion in your heart. That you don't just have the tendency to live like a selfish owner, but that's the way you view all of life. I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion because God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that sees him as the greatest prize, that sees him as the treasure you're after, that sees him as the one who has been generous to you first. And so communion might not be right for you, but Jesus is and River City is, and we want to help you know him. And so as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God. Ask him to remind you about his radical generosity to you. And ask him to transform your heart and the way that you view money so that you go from living like a selfish owner to being characterized by the perspectives and the attitudes and the actions of a generous steward. And pray that he would do that, not just for his glory, 
but for your good as he empowers you to harness the power of money and make it a servant of your love for him rather than a master that diverts it away. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for you. We're so grateful for your generosity towards us. And we pray, Jesus, that we might be a church that's characterized by having heart attitudes of generosity towards you and towards others. That you would help us to live not as selfish and greedy owners, but as grateful and generous stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. Help us to see where we're living like owners and help us instead to be empowered out of responding to your generosity to be characterized by living as generous stewards of all of the things you've entrusted to us, we pray. Amen.